Hello and welcome, boils and ghouls and non-dinary listeners. Once again, it is from the rooftops, October Spooptacular. <laughs> um, I'm impressed that he's still going with that one, you guys. <laughs> I got this voice. It doesn't have a lot of use. I'm going to use it when I can. I appreciate it. We all do. Yeah, yeah. This is my <laughs> gift to you. Yes, so, last week we talked about the science monster, and, uh, and and this week we want to expand upon that to talk about monster hunters, those characters that, in the end, are all about finding that they and the monster are not so different, after all. Yeah, most of them are the monster. Not in a metaphorical sense. Also, I skipped the introduction in the most technical sense, so just in case you weren't aware, this is From the Rooftops, a podcast about superheroes... That's Clay. <laughs> That's Talon. And we know more about superheroes than you do, which is a tagline I so, I'm, I'm sure we decided not to use, but I keep using it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. We know slightly more about monsters than you, having hunted them our whole lives and been tainted by the evil and still fighting the darkness. <laughs> well, legit, hands up who, in, who, who here between you, me, and the listener actually did witch hunting lessons. How'd that go for you, man? Well, I found a lot of witches. Oh, word? Several years later? Yeah. After you gave <laughs> They're pretty nice. They like socks. So, the monster hunter as an archetype. It's a it's a type of character you'll see a lot in comic books, and usually as a secondary character. There aren't a lot of, char- uh, a lot of monster hunter stories where this character gets a whole book to themselves. But, perhaps owing to the strong pulp roots of comic books in general... You'll often see one of them as a secondary character or filling out an ensemble cast, or very occasionally you'll see one invoked as like, oh, that was the person who trained this other character we want to show as being a badass. You know how for a while there, everyone in the Marvel Universe secretly had been trained by a ninja? Mm. It used to be a monster hunter. It used to be, oh, well, they can trace their lineage back to this important monster hunter or that important monster hunter. Yeah, or... Even that happens even within Monster Hunter circles themselves because of course you have Rachel Van Helsing who is a grand great great granddaughter of the original Abraham Van Helsing and Quincy Harker who is the whatever probably less because he's like a billion years old son of the original Harkers Jonathan and yeah Nina, I and this gets into the the League of the Extraordinary Gentlemen which is a comic book and it could be seen as a superhero story. Uh... I mean, if, we go, we, if we're going to go there, then we very much should go to Hellboy as well, who, you know, is his own kettle of fish, who used to get his training from, to, like, circle it right back around, to a pulp superhero. Like, he would talk about, you know, the, uh, what was it, uh, God, what was the name of that superhero? Not Lobster Johnson, the one who used to train Hellboy. Yeah, and for what it's worth, uh, I don't think of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as a superhero comic. Yeah. In the same way, I don't think of the X-Men as a superhero comic, but I do think of Hellboy as a superhero comic. And I don't. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I I don't consider uh, Bloodstone or Blade or any of those to be superheroes either. But I think... El- Elsa Bloodstone is a member of Next Wave. That doesn't make her a superhero. <laughs> and as you have proven, everyone in Next Wave belongs to the Avengers. <laughs> Hey, Robot Man was not in the Avengers. He was in the Doom Patrol. I don't know how he got there. He just showed up. 
And uh, Boom Boom was a member of the X-Men in X-Men Evolution for a hot second before she joined the uh, the Brotherhood. Mm. Well, by all accounts, that character is not the one that shows up in Next Wave, just in terms of personality and behavior and powers, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Ne- ne- Next, Wave's, uh, Next Wave's Boom Boom is, um, let's, let's call her a weak moment for that particular writing crew. Anyway... Monster Hunters are one of these great uh, great things to have in a superhero universe because they imply something about your world. They also allow you to have a normal that can still reasonably resemble our normal, despite the fact you've got some really hinked up stuff going on. Right. Remember how we talked about that anchor to normalcy? Mm. Well, in a universe where you have werewolves and vampires, the question almost always winds up with, why are there humans left? Like, vampires are incredibly good at wiping out humanity if you do the math on them. And in any superhero setting, they inevitably have powers that let them completely wreck humanity's stuff. In superhero universes, a monster hunter is a sort of apex predator that keeps the vampire population in check, which means that you can have a story where I am a vampire hunter, I go out and I kill vampires, is just part of their status quo, and it lets the world they're in still resemble our world, but have this interesting deviation into the abnormal. Yeah, and also it allows like a, a subset because you're always going to have that one who the wizard who explains all the magic, but you can have this other person come in and be sort of an expert on a different subset of magic and mystery and horror that they always come in and say, okay, here's the rules to you, new reader, because we're doing a vampire or a werewolf arc today. So I'm here to tell you, you know, silver, crosses, garlic, which of these work, which of these don't. Yeah, yeah. It It's interesting because, like, these it's very interesting, isn't it, that these characters sort of had their boom right around the time that sort of the horror limiters were broken, you know? They took off, they took off the weighted clothing and had this big burst of activity, and it sort of weaned off. And now they're, they've gone from main characters of their own minds to characters who pop up in other people's yeah, stories. Yeah, there, there was a sort of a, a containment scenario going on with... And, it, and this containment lasted for a long chunk of time. It was seen as very much... Uh, when the Comics Code first kicked in, uh, comic books very much wanted to move away from being perceived as being for or about horror. And that meant that a lot of the work they did was actively avoiding the trappings of horror and and getting away from that kind of, you know, gore, blood, viscera, zombies, demons kind of stuff. And when they did move away from that, the satanic panic of the 80s kind of scared them back into it. So you have (sighs) these two bubbles of time, which mostly are concentrated around moral panics from silly people that lead to, like, the the very few of the really horror comics kind of lasted or persisted from that period with the monsters and the monster hunters in them. Like, you'd get you'd get your swamp things, but that was definitely an aberration, not the norm. If you're going to see a hunter of monsters in a in a comic book during that period, you are probably going to see Craven, for example. And he's not a monster hunter, he's just a, a hunter archetype. Yeah, the great white hunter. And then you did have this resurgence because of the, you know, the, of course, the rise of all the darkness in the 90s and the increased popularity of Danny Ketch as Ghost Rider, you get the Midnight Suns coming back right around that time. And, you know, Night Stalkers, Dark Hole, two different Ghost Rider books, Morbius, become their own thing for a little period of time from, I think, 94 to 97. And that's where a lot of the push for those characters came from. 
and they faded back again, which is weird because in other culture it doesn't like books are just fine with vampires and monsters all day every day. They carved out their niche, and you know the comic book market, the superhero comic book market, kind of intentionally but unintentionally shrunk itself to where it can't you know carve that niche the way it used to. And that's one of the reasons why that run got three years. But yeah, you got a lot of books out of it. And a lot of stories. Well, this is this is part of what being a comic book is these days. Comic books aren't mm. superhero stories, and superhero stories aren't comic books. But right now, there are effectively these two big business frameworks jamming those things so closely together that they want you to identify them as being the same thing. Oh yeah, the conversation is so muddy because you want to say comics 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 but you're really in this on this show we're talking about superhero stuff and that dichotomy. i mean we've brought up video games and we've brought up movies um, yeah i mean my first exposure to this entire still goes back to spider cartoon and blade showing up to fuck up and how great that was and you know two or three later it got movies <laughs> i mean heck to, to use just to use an, a similar recent example, mm. they're making a big fuss about the um, Black Panther movie. And by the way, I fuss all you want. That is a fucking dope looking movie. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it because mm. absolute worst case scenario, I'm going to see some very cool people punch some very bad people. And there might be like structural stuff and, and like narrative stuff. And I'll get to hear a bunch of really cool cultural critics talking about it. And uh, hopefully Ta-Nehisi Coates gets more writing work out of this. But, um, in the context of that one piece of hype that came up was finally they're releasing a big budget superhero movie with a black protagonist. <laughs> okay, so there's this thing about that conversation since we're doing the me yelling about Blade bit. There's this thing, there's two things that happen. One, they do that. It pisses me off. Two, what will happen with some more like, people who will bother to mention that at all? They'll say, oh yeah, well... Blade came out a few years before, but, you know, it's not really a superhero. They want to hedge, right? They want to hedge because they want to segue into a conversation about X-Men. And here's the thing. Fuck you. If Wolverine counts, then Blade counts because they're the same fucking person. Yeah. And they dress the same in those movies. They do the same shit. You know what? Yeah. X-Men was second. They- you like the X-Men, X-Men fans? Fuck you. Blade was first. All the time, forever. Because they're, they're so close in terms of just you know, trappings and storytelling elements, you know. They even All right, look, both both Blade and Wolverine are people who have who, who cops have a reason to look at sideways because one's black and the other one is Australian. <laughs> they both don't die. They both fight people in a way you can't really pull off in an M rated movie. Mm. And they both have Ryan Reynolds. I'll take it <laughs> No, I'll take person. it even further. Both of them end, the plot of both of those movies end with the villain saying, I'm going to create a giant device to turn everyone into one of me. Yeah. And it ends with a big, well, the, if you look at the special, uh, features on Blade 1, the DVD, they both end with a big storm of swirling light that's gonna consume everybody, cause Lamargra yep. was gonna be a storm of blood that turned everybody into vampires, and they're like, wow, that looks ugly. Let's just make it a sword fight. And. Oh, and. For what it's worth, they also both end with a woman who has been previously framed as being sexually desirable and romantically appealing and vulnerable in a position of helplessness. And they both conclude with, um, oh wait, no, Wolverine's story concludes with being torn in half. Blade's story concludes with tearing someone else in half. Mm. Mm. 
But yeah, no, that whole thing. Because people are more apt to talk about X-Men because it's more culturally significant to them, you know? So they want to, like, even if they want to ign- don't want to ignore, they want to be like, yeah, like, I saw a lot of good, like, video essays and stuff talking about the X-Men, and then they'll just be like, yeah, Blade, kind of, sort of, but I want to be over here. And like, Yeah, well, they want to they spend that quarter. Yeah. They want to say, it's the first big-budget superhero action film with a black lead, and you can't. It's happened. The first one happened. What you can say is it's the first one we've done. It's the first one done. It's the first one done by Marvel Studios, and that's what these days. Yeah, it's it's the first one that doesn't feature a villain whose secret weakness (laughs) is tax evasion. These these aren't actually funny jokes to anyone except Clay. I'm basically pitching straight over Clay's plate. Let's talk about real things, right? Um. Yes. Let us let us talk about this the the hunter of monsters. So let's go to the very first quote you will probably see used in any of these monster hunter stories by Frederick. We don't know how to write this correctly without looking it up. Mm. Nietzsche about when you look into the abyss, the abyss looks also into you. And though, and he who hunts monsters must mm-hmm. be careful not to become a monster himself, yeah. because yeah. of course there's you do. That. A, of a course you do. Element of like corruption in a lot of these stories, and like a lot of these monster hunters are, if not monsters themselves, fucked up and tainted by the hunting. Uh, Quincy Harker, like the more his story goes on, the more you realize how fucked up he's been by pursuing Dracula his whole life. Like when you see him, he's a shriveled old man in a wheelchair, and you're like, wow, what happened? He said, fucking Dracula happened. That's what happened, and. As the story goes on, he goes, oh, I can't even... I wear these sunglasses yeah, constantly yeah. because somehow getting involved with Dracula means I can't see light anymore. And, you know, my whole wheelchair is just a weapon designed to kill Dracula. My house is a weapon. This is my whole fucking life and I'm miserable. Yeah. <laughs> my- yeah, yeah. And, and and that right there is a very common element you will see used in a lot of uh, superheroic narr- narrative about anyone who manages to make superheroics part of their mm. normal. Anyone whose whole existence becomes yeah. the mask. It messes them up. It's no great surprise that the absolute worst Batmans that we've seen in recent years have been the one who have the ones who have nothing mm. going it's on. Also as why Wolverine's so sour all the damn time? Because like, what's he do? You know? Yeah. Yeah, he he gets into fights with people he got into fights with forty five <laughs> years ago. Every year. Now that's why uh, that's why I feel that X Men Evolution Wolverine is one of the best Wolverines <laughs> because in that case he's being a proxy uncle to a whole squad of teenagers and they are mostly making him give a vague amount of care. Yeah, and this is sort of the same thing with Quincy Harker where he's grandpa to Rachel Van Helsing, Taj Natal, and Frank Drake. He's like trying to keep these kids in line. He's like, look at me. Look, See all this shit? This is you 10 years from now. Do something about it. And it's it's great because nobody gets out a lot. Yeah. No talk. Nobody gets out of Tomb of Dracula alive except Blade and um, uh, uh, good lord, I know this man's name. Um, Hannibal Kane. Uh, because they're fucking immortal. <laughs> yeah. It's but yeah, but um, none of them get out of that alive. Eventually, it all they all succumb. Yeah. And they all get, because... Now, to be fair, that's, that's what that story's about. Right? It takes a while to get there, right? You, yeah, but, but you, don't, you don't tune into a story called The Tomb of Dracula thinking shit's gonna go fine. 
yeah, it doesn't go well for Dracula most of the time because he's the mm. real main character. That's the interesting thing about that you have stories like Tomb of Dracula, um, Werewolf by Night, and then you get Frankenstein and Ghost Rider where the monster is the main character and he's pursued by all these people. It only so happens that the characters pursuing Dracula and Tomb of Dracula were also interesting compared to like the villains of uh, Werewolf by Night or the villains of Ghost Rider who's you know Satan, his people. They're villains, yeah. but you have Tomb of Dracula where you have a hero pursuing a villain and they want to sort of play off of that where Dracula is very clearly a villain, but he's also your protagonist. So, mm? yeah. So, so I'm going to set out here much of the same way we did with the superheroes, just a couple of quick postulates about what makes a character work for me as a monster hunter, mm. as a, as a hunter of yeah. monsters. All right. First things first, they need to be secret. Mm. In a superhero story, a monster hunter needs to have some reason that they are not publicly and no, and obviously known. Usually this means what they're working on is a small area and they're doing a sort of specialized containment. Uh, sometimes there's a conspiracy element to it where making sure that they are known would endanger them even further than just going out there and hunting the monsters would naturally. And tertiarily to that, You've got, like, you've got some characters who kind of work as they can drop in and drop out of superhero stories, you know, give or take, but broadly speaking, they have some reason to be keeping what they do a secret. Second, the stuff they deal with has to have some way of itself being kept a secret. So, werewolves work, vampires work, ghosts sometimes work. You can't do this with nine foot tall people eaters you don't have a monster hunter whose job is to mm. take out fin fang foo there's there's no hulk monster eater you can kind of make a case that there was a um a, a, a mutant hunter kind of thing in a period there it's, but that's also silly because mutants are silly anyway um it's it's a parallel conversation going on there yeah but it's sort of the thing you get with elsa bloodstone where she does hunt a lot of the weirder monsters like monstery monsters, but she still doesn't know with that's part of how they made her like a central figure in Monsters Unleashed this past year because they decided they were going to bring all these giant monsters back and you need sort of a focal point there and that's where they put her in that position and because it was giant monsters it was an event it wasn't just a weekly a monthly of her fighting you know kaiju it was no it was a bunch of kaiju it's a thing now most of the time she's chasing down you know mummies and uh, werewolves and things like that and that's where she fits in well enough. Like, we don't see her, that's what we know she's doing. She's fucking shooting werewolves. And that, again, brings us back to that is their normal. The stories about monster hunters are not, well, they're going to go and hunt a monster. Their stories are about something that deviates this particular monster hunt from the normal. The monster has escaped to a location they don't normally go. The monster has a capacity they don't normally understand. The questions of monster hunter stories are inevitably not about the everyday action of hunting monsters. They're almost always about a deviation from the normal, something that interrupted that everyday process. And I, I've i talked about this in the past, the idea of a single instigatory event. Now, uh, this is very useful for superhero stories because superhero stories try their best to frame their world as if it is the real world, as if this is their normal everyday existence you and I recognize, more or less. And what that means is that in order for things to go out of hand, in order to have the event happen... Everything in that world needs to be more or less proceeding consistently and have a status quo. The more different things that need to go wrong or need to have happen in the same period of time and space, 
to make the story happen, the more interruptions to normal you need. So it's one thing for a lab accident resulted in a criminal getting sand powers and they burst out and started hecking up stuff. That's one deviation. That's all you need and you've got the Sandman. But if it's this organization that you've never heard of was doing a conspiracy and this other organization that was doing a thing you haven't heard of was doing their own conspiracy and the two messed up and this resulted in a third thing teleporting a werewolf from Asgard into the mortal realm where it's now hunting a fourth thing. At that point, you're talking about a lot of moving parts that aren't normal. They aren't things that you have already come to accept. So the interruption to your reality becomes more strained. I mean, yeah, this is the same thing you get in the classic superhero story where there's this thing of people saying that superheroes are more reactive, but they always come onto problems in the middle of searching other props. It's always in the middle of stopping a mugging, you come across this other situation. By the same token, it'll be in the middle of your sort of standard vampire hunting situation, shit gets complicated. It's a pretty typical superhero plot thing, and this is how they intersect in that way. You know? Yeah. And indeed, sometimes, sometimes the variation you get of a superhero story, which they are doing, which is to them normal, is a vampire hunter bursts in in the middle of their situation mm. and goes, all right, you have a problem you didn't know you had. And that's that's a nice use of these two right. different normals crashing into each other. You get that um, sort of in the like sort of malign recent issue of not recent issue, but the sort of intersection of the X Men and the vampire stories, where somebody just you just have uh, who is it Jubilee, and I want to say Angel, not Warren Worthington, but the black woman with the fairy wings. Uh, some dude just walks up and explodes all over them. Like what the fuck? And it turns out it was a vampire conspiracy. And that's how they get all of that involved. And <laughs> Now, don't get me wrong. I love when comic books goes, go, go gonzo like this. All right? I absolutely love big, silly combination events of, yeah, a vampire conspiracy to make a mecha. Sure, let's go there. Let's see what that looks like. But one of the things you need to ramp up to those things is a consistent feeling of normal. There's a reason there is so much Spider-Man. It's because most of that Spider-Man, which isn't very good, I'm, I'm just going to say, you can you can ignore the bulk of Spider-Man, but the bulk of Spider-Man is determining what's normal, what every day is. And once you're in, once you're into yeah. comics, you can totally go wacko bananas with it. And that's great. The Monster Hunters are kind of like, narratively speaking, these guardians of the normal. They keep the supernatural weird stuff over in Supernatural Weird Stuffville. And it means you also don't have this problem of like, well, yeah, this dude came out of a crowd and he tried to bite my neck, but I'm Spider-Man, so I punched him in the face and the problem went away because that's all it really needed. <laughs> Spider-Man has been turned at least once and got some shotgun shells and his kneecap for his trouble. <laughs> that's the kind of thing people mm. write. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, with, without superheroic context of what a vampire is or does, without, like, a right. superhero-level vampire, uh, you know, any given vampire monster wandering up... Like, if a dude who looked like a wolf started chucking cars, Superman would just go like, oh, you must be wolf dude, and would just capture right. him as if he was just wolf dude. All the stuff about moons and phases and blood rage and transforming into different things, and the imagery of the monster within versus the monster without... All of that is meaningless in the context of, well, you're just one of the many, yeah. many weird people that, with a gimmick. That's part of why a lot of the intersection tends to be, I'm building up to something. Like when he, when uh, Blade was on the Mighty Avengers, and 
he interacted with them on the on the context of some shit's about to go down, and it involves Shumagorath and bigger things. I'm around to get a handle on that. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm dealing with you people right now because something's on the way. And there's a lot of that. You'll get these characters saying, darkness is rising, you know, evil is coming, someone's going around handing out pages of the Darkhold again, and it's all leading up to something. And like you said, there's sort of the arbiters of the normal, and they're also just sort of the harbingers of doom in a lot of ways. You get that. Especially with characters like, who aren't really monster hunters, but, you know, uh, Doctor Strange, um, some, uh, Damon Hellstrom, uh, John Constantine. They're there to say, hey, shit's about to pop off, and you need to get a handle on it. Uh, there is this thing where, because we don't have as much of, because, you know, that particular subset of comics doesn't, isn't able to niche as well, that they've fallen into the wayside. And that creates the situation where people forget the capabilities, the history, the story behind this, and they go, eh, whatever, vampires, werewolves will bring it in every once in a while. Yeah. And you get that thing where, you like for I want to say the last two years, Deadpool has been married to a queen of hell or Dunderworld. Yeah, that's been his standard. I think they broke up or whatever, and that was a big event. And I think that's the most recent like appearance of the vampire community where Blade shows up and says, "Uh, no, she needs to die. I'm sorry." <laughs> and as a representative of the vampire American community. <laughs> There was that situation he had with the X-Men at the end of their whole thing. They're like, okay, well, we brought Dracula back to life. And despite Mr. Brooks's numerous, you know, you know, opinions to the contrary. And it's okay, cool. We did all this. I'm going to kill him now. Like, no, no, we made a deal. It's like, I don't care if you made a deal. Yeah. <laughs> this motherfucker. And He's not, Dracula. Yeah. There's, this is thing. That's part of what sort of keeps things normal, but also at a reasonable level, because there have been numerous instances where, like, all of the vampires in Marvel went away via magic and then came back via magic. And part of the reason why nobody ever just rose up on Dracula, like, nobody in the outside world rose up on him, is because he is kind of an honorable person, and I guess, in, in a way, in that he's beholden yeah. to his obligations and his, you know, deals he makes with people. And so, as far as I can tell, he makes a lot of deals with superheroes that he holds them to, and that they, you know, continue to hold themselves to, you know? <laughs> he's done this to Blade at least once, where he's, yeah, he showed up very early in his career, killed all of his friends, said, I'm gonna let you live, though, you know? Blade had assembled this entire team of, like, multi-diasporic African vampire hunters, and they got together to kill him. And he's like, y'all are a bunch of dudes. <laughs> Fuck you. Stab, 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 stab. But you, you stay around. I don't need you for something later. Bye. And he flew off. And this was like in the early 1920s or something. And so then once Dr- Dracula came back to life for like the 15th time, he says, oh, I'm back. You get up, up, up. Remember? You remember in 1920? Ah. And says, okay, that's fine. This time. Which I don't believe. That's part of the thing about these characters. They live in a like a grittier world, and I feel like none of them would be beholden on this bullshit. Like I know Bloodstone wouldn't do that. Elsa <laughs> wouldn't be like, "Oh well, we had to." No, bam. <laughs> yeah, uh, Elsa in particular is a bad example of this because, uh, in in addition, because of her existence as an X wave character, and because it's funny, she's kind of ridiculously more vicious than any of her boy counterparts. I would like say. I. <laughs> 
I want these characters to be like the mean kids who smoke under the bleachers compared to like everyone else in their universe. And like, no, we don't fucking care. Yeah. We'll kill you. We'll kill you for well, no reason. It's a monster. We well, have a yeah. job. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, this is also part of why these characters work so well as a dash of spice. Yeah. Because the superheroes remember that whole thing about they about they need to be secret. Monster hunters need to be secret. Superheroes need to be about something. Mm. The whole point of a superhero is, to a degree, tangibility. Uh, you know, being recognized, being a symbol, being component of the culture they're in. Whereas a monster hunter is almost explicitly about not doing that. The second that Blade starts getting people writing his name on billboards is the second that character is yeah. done. Yeah, and because because you give Blade that level of structural presence and power. He is going to assemble the most sick team of vampire hunters, and he's going to go mess up Dracula, because he's got a job to do. <laughs> and you get this with, um, like, the early Night Stalkers, and uh, you get this with characters like yeah, the Darkhold Redeemers, which is interesting, right? Because these are monster hunters of a sort, but that book was intended to be very X-Files in the way it did. So you have them more like just the edge of things. Because you have two normal people pursuing this mystery mm-hmm. of who is this uh, little person going around delivering pieces of the dark hole, which is basically like the Necronomicon, and you, you hold it, you think about something you want, and it inevitably ends up in Lovecraftian horror, you know? And yeah, yeah, it's it's a monkey's paw in you know in a, in that special comic book way of. We can't yeah, just call well, it a goddamn monkey's paw. They also wanted a Necronomicon or Tome of the Eternal Darkness, which, oh man, Eternal oh, Darkness yeah, yeah. is awesome. Yeah, and and they managed to do it without invoking the grotesque racism oh, yeah. of the original right. Necronomicon. Which I'm sure it wasn't even a magical book. It was just like, here's a book written in Chinese. <gasps> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Well, while we're talking about monsters, the original Necronomicon in the work of H.P. Lovecraft is uh, written by the Mad Arab, mm. um, uh, whose name has been, like, there, there are a bunch of different ways of writing his name that Lovecraft used, and literally none of them work in Arabic. There is no Arabic language this character can be named in. It is peak white guy making shit up. Um the, the most recent, like, modernizations of this refer to it as the Al-Azif, which is, like, the book. It, it's, like, you know, they have tried very hard to make it so you can refer to this book's author without being kind of blatantly yeah, racist. It's, it's always funner when it's, like, you know, Moo or Atlantis, which is something entirely fictional. Of course, there's some bullshit wrapped up in Atlantis, too, you know? A lot of the... Oh yeah, but that's that is some that is some vintage racism. That is that that's like pre-colonial <laughs> racism. That's Greek colonial racism. Yeah. That's that's fascinating stuff. And um and and while we're sharing horror stories of the sea and the ocean, um there was a period of time during the British Empire where there was a belief that the Welsh were the last children mm. of Atlantis. Oh, yeah, because because Welsh as a language bore no resemblance to a civilized language. <laughs> I know. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the oldest actually English language that exists, like from the island of England. Uh, but they were saying, well, it's not like Roman at all. It's it's clearly made up gibberish. Um, and in the, in the in, you know this, yeah, yeah, in the seventeenth century, they were like, well, the Welsh are clearly 
mutant children of of, uh, of fish people because they all go to sea. They all go to sea because you won't let them get jobs in the city, you dickhead. And bonus, bonus, this meant that speaking Welsh on a ship usually meant there was someone else on the ship who wasn't <laughs> a captain who you could talk to, which meant there was a gossip network on all these ships of Welsh people who were all explicitly not the captain, which then led to uh, captains growing superstitious about Welsh sailors thinking they were psychic and could communicate across great distances. Oh, so, man. you know, don't do anything mean to the Welsh sailors or they'll all know with their Atlantis powers. Yo, man, these ancient, these ancient conspiracies are great. And not it sucks. Yeah. It sucks that all the good, like, Illuminati stuff gets taken up by... Super racist? No, just... Yes. <laughs> but just all the good ancient conspiracy... It gets super racist. <laughs> get taken up by... Like... Like spies and stuff. I want to see monster hunters fight the yeah, Illuminati. Yeah. I want to see that. that's a great angle for them. Yeah, like how many how many of these ancient conspiracies just boil down to someone pointing in his basement at a, at a corkboard shouting the Jews? Every single one of them. <laughs> there are a couple that are that are about uh like there are some particularly obscure ones which are like uh, a, a Han Chinese person pointing at their own version of a corkboard screaming uh the tanar sorry the, the tamir but yeah ba- basically it's just a way to launder our racism yeah. uh, man, you... which is which is why australian uh, uh, australian colonial people thought for a while that the aboriginals had mystical powers and could summon up dreadful monsters from the deep well you just have the dreadful monsters running around like the spider tears it's true <laughs> yep oh, man. yep 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 so monster hunters, monster hunters as character archetypes get to be these guardians of the normal, and at the same time they get to give you like this vacation spot to take your story to. It's also interesting they get to tie back a lot to the past. They because mm. I think good monster hunters tend to have a very old fashioned aesthetic to them because yeah, you know when for example, oh I don't know, the Punisher gets guns from heaven and becomes uh. a demon hunter. It's kind of weird and dumb, you know? Yes. When Elsa Bloodstone does it, it's cool. And because yes. She, because that's her thing. She has this long... She has a history that goes back to fucking Conan the Barbarian. It's amazing. Yeah. El- Elsa Elsa Bloodstone's history includes public domain stuff. That's how far back she goes. <laughs> and, and do you know how hard it is to keep something in public domain if Marvel wants it? But they've done well, it. It's weird because, right, the original... Bloodstone goes back that far, but Elsa herself goes back to 2004, yeah. and she got like four issues, and then we got like basically like sexy Buffy, and then and then we get next wave, yeah. and that's when we get the Bloodstone everybody cares about. We get the cool, you know, cussing, hard drinking, yeah. you know, shoot everything up Bloodstone. The the Elsa Bloodstone who's responsible for quite possibly the greatest line in all comics. Is this the, uh, it explodes, my life has no meaning? <laughs> no, no. She's got a lot of good lines, but my absolute favorite line from, from Elsa is when a Forbrush man is looming over her and she's wearing an EU t-shirt and he says, just lay down, it's time to be a victim. And she says, victim, do you think this letter on my shirt stands for America? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and when that line got written in a writer's room, I'm sure that there was one Irish guy, one Scottish guy, and one British guy who looked at that line and said, there's no way they'll print that. <laughs> Yo, fuck you, Mark Millar. Fuck you so much. <sighs> God. Yeah, um... There's, there's a lot of very complicated politics to unpick there if you're a uh, American listener, and we'll happily do that on the episode we don't talk hey, about Blade. Hey, do you know, um, I know you'll love this. You know Stick, right? You have strong feelings about Stick. Yes, I know who Stick How is. How do you feel about Ultimate Stick? Because guess who cut his fucking head off? <laughs> Wait, did we just manage to get a Blade Stick crossover? Okay, so an Ultimate Marvel, right? Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, Daredevil, the continuity animal, right? Daredevil dies, and then we're introduced to this new Daredevil, who is immediately beset upon by vampires, and we wonder why. Uh, it becomes to find out that an old student of Sticks basically decides, "Fuck all this ninja shit! I'll just become a vampire," and starts amassing a vampire army in the sewers, which inevitably includes Stick, who gets his shit blown up by Blade once he comes to the Avengers. He's like, "Fuck vampire guys, really." really. If there was, if you showed me a panel of uh, of Stick getting his head cut off by Blade, I would have assumed that was fan art you personally made for me. I don't even hate him as much as dude. It just shows up sometimes. <laughs> it's shocking me to give a fuck. <laughs> I uh, yeah. To to provide context for the listener, um, Stick is a character in Daredevil who I've never liked him. And Stick recently got given a new round of prominence by being a central character in both seasons of Daredevil, the Marvel TV show on Netflix, and also a major character in Defenders. And it's a really good depiction of Stick in that he's a completely hateable, horrible character who doesn't need to be yeah, there. Yeah, Stick is exactly what you expect from him. And everything... Yeah, stick stick is Frank Miller trying to write himself as a cool, right. bitter mentor. I mean, there's a place for those characters. Um, it's just absolutely there's levels to that, right? And it's that's what you want to tell them. Yeah, I know because kind of a bitter person myself, but there's a way to go about it, right? And like I said, that's why I never yeah. hated Stick that much because he only showed for a little while. He, he had a whole lot of screen time in that show, which you know yeah. gave us that exposure to him. And he does present himself almost like the Monster Hunter character. I'm here to tell you all about the mystery, yeah. all about the supernatural shit. And it's, yeah, dude, there, there are better ways to do that. There are better people to do that with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's tiresome. I, I I just don't have a ton of time right. for characters in comic book stories who aren't there to be part of comic book stories. The characters who stand around. And, and this is the thing with the Monster Hunters. Monster Hunters, like, even Elsa who is, again, Elsa is ultimately a next-wave character who escaped into the greater Marvel canon. But Elsa doesn't spend her time sneering at the idea of doing good. Elsa's focused on her thing, but she doesn't sit there going, oh, well, the Avengers are all idiots. Even though she, thanks to Monica Rambeau, kind of has a reason to have a chip on her shoulder about the Avengers. I think part of it is that, again, when you're dealing with young grand horrors and shit you're just you're just too fucking distracted you got other things going on and you're worried about the fucking cthulhu coming through or all kinds of bullshit to not have all these well-developed feelings out you know there's nerds there but you'll get that and you have little yeah points of that coming through especially if they stand in the way of you and your task you know because 
You can show up on the helicopter with Captain Britain and say, look, I don't give a fuck about your superhero shit. That person over there is a vampire. Yeah. I'm going to stab them now. <laughs> it's not... It's Yeah. And this is... This is part of why Monster Hunter's having that task and having that, like, guardianship of the normal is really useful because it means that they're almost always a free source of somewhat antagonistic but reasonable drama and tension. Right, because it's... it's Like, from the perspective of the X-Men, like, Dracula, hey, we made a deal, we're the good people, we don't, we don't cut the heads off people that we've made deals with. Blade don't care, Blade's got a job. He killed all of my friends! <laughs> he killed everybody He's I fucking know. Dracula! <laughs> Shit's going down. <laughs> and also, know, even if he hadn't been a personal attack on me, he's Dracula. <laughs> I don't know Dracula was real nice to those kids that one time. There's a fantastic uh, Tomb of Dracula, and it's fantastic. It's enjoy, it's entertaining in its own way of this anime adaptation of Tomb of Dracula. No blade, a little bit of Frank Drake and Quincy Harker, and it involves such things as. Uh, Satan taking his vampirism just to fuck with him and then Dracula goes to eat a cheeseburger and like live normal for a while besides he hates that shit it's 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 out there on YouTube just look up uh, Tomb of Dracula English dubbed and everything it's real 80s like we've established what they're for we've established what they do and we've clearly got an appreciation for Elsa Bloodstone in this conversation and even if you don't I've got enough for both of us <laughs> What are some examples of characters you think make really good monster hunters? And do you have any examples of characters who you think are definitely not, despite their proximity? Leslie, I was talking earlier about the whole thing where uh, Frank Castle got killed and brought back to life for a while as a a punishment. Sorry, I forgot that you mentioned that because it's such a stupid idea. Right, right, because it's... It's... Again, once again, like, if you have a monster hunter who has a massive amount of modern weaponry and solutions and things like that, it takes away from the supernatural aspect, and it goes into, like, this Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. thing, because S.H.I.E.L.D. has this, uh, rendition of a monster hunting group they call the Howling Commandos, you see, because one of them's a werewolf, and they, that's a that's a pun, Talon, they're, they're Howling Commandos, it's very funny. Look, it is totally cool for any given group to have hunky werewolf boys. Right. Well, what about what about hunky geese just, or was it hunky swans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just so everyone knows, Clay's Halloween costume this year is going to be a hunky swan. No, no, it's but yeah, the fucking howling commandos. I mean, part of it is they're aggressively like they're shield. They're they're a government agency and they have all this infrastructure and shit, which makes it cool, makes it less interesting, uh, makes it less supernatural. It's hard to be a spooky monster when you have to do paperwork, you know. And, you know, they they, sh- they show up with a bunch of guns and they have so, their shield jumpsuits on. And it's like, mm, not so much, you guys. <laughs> so one of the things with, with modernization of weaponry in the context of, um, in, in the context of mm. Monster Hunters is modern weaponry is industrialized. If there's any given gun you see that has a nicely machined stock and even just like the vague aesthetic of what you modern day consider a gun, that gun doesn't exist solitary any given gun i i do not care how incredibly fancy the people you know handing the gun over in narration want to say it's not a matter of like yes we've had this one gun specially made and it's all machined out of like titanite and stuff like that no that gun is part of like 30 different systems and plans it has got 
3D rendered models, it has programs, it has molds, it has shapes. You cannot produce any of that stuff on a one-on-one basis. So every time you see a gun that looks vaguely modern in the context of a monster hunter, you are looking at a gun that can be mass-produced. And mass-producing these things to hunt a tiny population, you win. You just win. If If you can deploy 1,500 Elsa Bloodstones to Werewolf Forestville, you do that. And and there are no werewolves. It's it's it finishes it. And not only that, but it takes away part of the aspect of being special, the fact of being a hero and having skill to it. Because once you can make like modern, like modular super rifles that can take down supernatural threats, then you can give them to your average soldier. You know? Yeah. If it can, and if they can, only and you know what? Average soldiers tend to be pretty good at using guns. Yeah. No. There's a there's a almost like we train them for it. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to. You can only do it with this extremely classical bolt-action rifle or revolver or even with a sword or a stake or a knife. That becomes a thing you have to work for. And that can, you know, impl- you know, emphasize the supernatural and superhuman aspects of these characters where they have to work harder. So you, you mow through 50 guys with a sword, you got some shit going on. And the other thing is that these are monster hunters. And so they there needs to be this aspect of horror to it. And that's take away when you can shine modern lights into it. I'm going to reference a really shitty movie that had a great moment. Uh, you ever seen Ninja Assassin? Is this the one with Jeffrey Rush looking up at the rooftops and going, Ninjas, damn. I don't remember, but it is the one with that um, that singer, Rain, like popping off, and it was like a big deal about the 3D they had. One of the cooler things yep, is... Yep, 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 yep. This okay. is that movie. Uh, you remember how the ninjas were this horrifying supernatural force throughout the whole first half of the movie? And then the military comes in with floodlights and they're just a bunch of dudes in outfits? Yeah, you're going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting here because despite the fact that I've seen this movie, I can't remember any of it. In this movie... This, this movie is dizzyingly forgettable. In, in this movie, it's not a great movie, but that one moment I exemplifies what I'm talking about where... Throughout the movie, yeah. they could literally teleport through darkness. Like, there was no explanation for how it worked or what they did. They would just not be there if there was no light in a place. And could appear and reappear and do whatever. And it was just like, wow, we don't know, ninjas, magic, maybe? But then they call it, the end of it, they raid the ninja facility and they all just come in with floodlights on their tanks. And it's over. They just mow everybody down. And yeah. <laughs> it's not scary anymore. For all the bullshit of that movie. Well, that's the thing. Military military forces represent structural power. We talked about this. The The fact is, once you start getting the kind of power that can be marshaled on a governmental level, it, it kind of needs to operate at that scale. In X-Men, for all that we complain about the X-Men, the X-Men got it right, because when the time came for the Sentinels program, it wasn't a matter of like, yeah, we built one Sentinel, and now you can fight it. And if you win, that'll be it. No, it's like the first time Sentinels show up, it's like, yeah, we've already mass produced mm-hmm. like a thousand of these. Yeah. And even just that, like, again, it's horror. It's supposed to be about the unknown, about the mystery, about like being overwhelmed and not being able to comprehend it. And if you put a fucking light on it and shoot it with a gun, it's just some asshole. Like you said, it's when Superman shows up and punches a werewolf. Oh, it's not scary anymore. It doesn't have that ring of horror. Whereas, yeah. if you can't kill it with guns, and your all your technology like fails whenever it's around, it re- maintains that air of horror. It's part of why how Commandos never really succeeds very well whenever they try to redo it. So it's like, yeah, whatever, who cares? Yeah. One, one of the things you can kind of 
look to for monsters and monster hunters as well is monsters, much with the mutants as metaphor that we already talked about, are usually a metaphor for something about humanity. And that means the ways to kill them are usually not going to be as simple as just treating it like it's a thing made of meat. You often get stories where, uh, for example, in the case of werewolves, yeah, you'll often get stories where shooting a werewolf in the face with a silver bullet will take them out, and then you get this kind of character war against the, uh, the, against the werewolves, and that's fine. But the actual solving of the problem is never as simple as just shooting them. Usually they represent things like structural failures of power. Dracula right. is so much about nobility and power, about inherited, overwhelming, implacable power. That's why every Dracula story ends with, and Dracula will come mm-hmm. back. It's just, it's an inevitability that he's a force in the universe, even though there are older vampires in him in a lot of the stories. He's the big one because he's important. He's a count. He's a big fucking deal. The old Dracula story was about how, like, you have these fucking weird-ass nobles up in these, you know, castles and stuff, so removed from society, and yet so, like, infinitely powerful that they can be these huge fucking weirdos, and there's nothing you can do about it. He can be, you know, fucking Count Orlock, and what yeah. are you gonna do? He's, he can, he owns the country, so he'll just come down every night and eat your children, and you'll have to deal with that. Yeah, and that's the thing. The solutions to these monstrous problems need to be in a different genre. They need to be about something other than just applications of superheroic power. Elsa Bloodstone is an incredible badass. There's comics that are apparently canon now of her killing multi-fanged <laughs> monsters as a baby with a spoon. But part of what makes her a badass is an enormous quantity of knowledge about how these things die. It's never as simple as you just shoot them. And indeed, when it is as simple as you just shoot them, she usually makes it a joke. Uh, even like Legion of Monsters is another thing they try to make happen. Is it's whenever they try to, it's weird. Whenever you try to superhero up the monstrous aspect of your universe a little too much, is when you fall off the end, right? Because you're trying to give it too much like hype and too much pomp and circumstance, and it it's yeah, it's spooky and it looks cool. Like there's cool visuals to it, but it you there's no there's not that sense of like being a victim that a lot of horror comic protagonists have where terrible things just happen to you constantly and you have to overcome it you like a lot of horror movie stories are about being constantly beset by the horrible thing yeah trying to figure out the rules and trying to survive long enough to fix the problem it's like it's like the slasher thing right you do deal with jason until you figure out how to get rid of jason like it's a survival story more than anything else and when those monster stories intersect with superheroes it's part of that is when done well, is that survival aspect. It's like, hey, your whole yep. life is about to go to shit. I'm here to carry you through this. You know? I'm here with my knives and my stakes and my guns to help you through a, a survival situation. A thing you're going to have to fight your way through. As opposed to a thing you're going to have to clash with. That's part of why, like, it's very rarely one monster. Like, it'll always be, there's a werewolf outbreak. There's a vampire outbreak. It's never just, oh, we just have to beat Frankenstein up. Frankenstein usually is off minding his own damn business, and most of the stories, hell, in DC, Frankenstein's a monster hunter himself. He's got, he's got, what is it, uh, the right arm of an angel, wields a holy sword, you know? <laughs> it's, Which is pretty cool, honestly. Like, yeah, alright, fine, but still. I, I do think that, uh, I, I do think that a character with his backstory 
deciding, you know what, I'm gonna, like, you know, fight the things like my father. I dig that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting when you, <laughs> uh, it's a good old, uh, uh, Moto Iron Fist story where Orson Randall comes into contact with Dr. Frankenstein and his mother. And just that, cause, no, it wasn't Dr. Frankenstein. It was the Prince of Orphans who also has this sort of monster hunter thing going on about him. Because, yeah. He, he, who's also a public domain yeah, character. An amazing man. It's that cool thing where he's the only one who can punch ghosts. But that's all he can do is punch them. <laughs> So he turns into a ghost and he beats the shit out of ghosts with his bare ghost hands. And again, it's that old-fashioned aspect of, no, you, no guns, no magic, no, you have one advantage, sir. You can beat the ghosts back to death. And you can deal with the ghosts, someone else can fight the fucking dragon, you know? <laughs> yeah, the, these, uh, these things are all important about these, these elements of the character being monstrous but engaged with human answers for monstrosity like genuine cthuloid horror doesn't show up in comics very often or very well and like honestly the best examples of it you've yeah. got are things like galactus which it's its own oh, yeah. that is its own conversation but the like just just to bring up an example of a character who definitely isn't a monster hunter despite fitting a lot of these trappings the specter and mm-hmm. to a lesser extent ghost rider they both have they both have this context of, like, the enemies they face are inevitably in some way connected with human emotions and human horror. Um, they're often lone. They are often isolated and secret away from the majority of the population. Uh, and they're usually doing their own thing. And most of the stories about them are about things that deviate right. them from their normal everyday yeah, narrative. Yeah, no, because the, they're not monster hunters. A sort of iconic ghostwriter story is always, I'm just trying to do my thing with my show and Satan comes to fuck up my life. And that's a very good horror movie character story because it is just about, you know, horror being beset upon you. But those who wasn't, you know, Johnny Blaze was in the middle of chasing down devils and found more devils. No, he was just trying to be Johnny Blaze. He's trying to get out and they keep pulling him back in. Some of the best stories about him are that of being dragged into terrible, horrible things where you have Bloodstone, you have Blade, you have... Uh, other characters like this, they're there. They live there, and they find a deeper path. You get Brother Voodoo, or you get uh, Dame Halstrom. They were always there, and they're finding more. Now, typically speaking, this is one of the other things about these characters. They tend to be in some way liminal, which is to say, of or relating to a threshold or a barrier. Look at all these characters and see how many of them have, for some reason, a need to exist in two different worlds at once. Blade isn't a vampire that hunts vampires. Blade is a half vampire. Uh, Elsa Bloodstone is an inheritor of this monster hunter legacy, but she is an ordinary person. She is not imbued with the power of the monsters. Well, she's got the power of the Bloodstone, which brings trouble yeah, to her. Which is, which is no, a tool. Yeah, and it also attracts yeah. evil to her, which is part of that whole thing of having terrible shit to you constantly. Yeah, I actually really like that particular trope of here is a thing that makes you powerful, but it will also... Like, this is the thing that's going to keep instigating stories. Um, I'm actually a big fan of when a character's design or backstory is used to just be the reason why they get to do shit. Like, um, Chun-Li, to use a really off-the-wall example in this context. Like, We are using Ninja Assassin, so we're already doing weird shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chun-Li. Why is Chun-Li in this location investigating things? <laughs> she works for Interpol. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're done. That's our explanation. It- 
Let's get on the kicking. That's one of the other benefits of any Monster Hunter character, right? If something should, like, okay, let's say some science thing happened, right? And you might have to explain why X character shows up if they're not specifically someone who has, if the Doctor Doom shows up, shows up, like if a Doom bot shows up and blows up, you expect Reed Richards to appear, right? But if some weird science monster appears, you may or may not see Reed Richards. If vampires show up, guess who's coming? You know, if we're right, <laughs> someone's getting stabbed. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get a blading. In fact, in fact, in fact, you could say he's an ablative answer. No, you go home. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I tried. Don't try. I realized I shouldn't have. <laughs> that was number two in our October Spooktacular. I want to thank you very much for listening. And once again, that was Clay. And that was Talon. And as a public service announcement, if an old man with an old shotgun and some stakes come into your life, do what he says. Dude probably knows what he's talking about. He probably knows what he, especially if he has a limp, because those motherfuckers know things. Yeah, anyone who survives vampire territory with a limp clearly knows oh, what's yeah. what. Anyway, turn in, tune in next time when we will... Hang on, wait, we, we just legitimately and honestly talked about Blade a bunch. Oh, there's always more. There's always more. And it's always there. But you least expect it. <laughs>